John 16, and we'll pick up where we left off last week with verse 5. The thought really begins in the middle of verse 4. So let's back up to the second half of verse 4. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. God, again, we thank you for this opportunity to look to your word. It is perfect, it is without error. It is God-breathed, and it is profitable for us. And Lord, I pray in this time that we spend looking to your word, that you would do the miracle in our hearts of opening our understanding, of giving us hearts to receive your truth. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do His work here this morning. In the hearts of unbelievers, Lord, I pray that He would convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. And for those of us who are saved, Lord, I pray that your Spirit would do the work in us of guiding us into all truth and giving us boldness to proclaim that truth. Lord, I pray even now that your Spirit would be working in me and through me as I preach your word. Be honored in this time we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Several times already, just in this study of the upper room discourse, we have discussed the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, just in the last 50 to 100 years, there has been more written 
about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit than has ever been in all of church history. There are countless books, seminars, study courses, sermons, all kinds of resources available to the church today to study and to understand the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. But despite all the resources and all the effort that has been put into writing about the Holy Spirit, unfortunately, there's still a lot of confusion about who He is and what He does. Just because there's a lot of material doesn't mean it's all good material. I think that the problem, at least in part, is due to the fact that when people want to study the Holy Spirit, where are the first passages they go? A lot of times people go straight to the book of Acts, the day of Pentecost, and the subsequent miracles that the apostles did to testify that the word that they were preaching was true, that it was from God. Or they'll go to 1 Corinthians and look at chapters 12 and 13 and 14 and look at how the miraculous sign gifts were active in that early part of the church history and how that people spoke in tongues or languages. And that's where people tend to go first in their study of the Holy Spirit. And they come out all confused not knowing what to believe because there's all kinds of teaching out there. But if we want to get to the root, the essence, the foundation of the work of the Holy Spirit. I think the best place to find that is right here in John chapter 16 in the words of Jesus Himself. Because before you ever have the first apostolic miracle in the church age, and before the first Christians ever spoke in those various languages at Pentecost, you have right here the Lord Jesus Himself summarizing the work of the Holy Spirit, I believe, in four simple words in verse 14. He says this, He will glorify me. If you want to boil the work of the Holy Spirit down to one simple statement, why does He do what He does? It comes down to this, He will glorify me. Jesus. The work of the Holy Spirit, quite simply, is to put the spotlight on the Son of God. And anyone who puts the majority of their focus on the work of the Holy Spirit, I mean, we have whole ministries and TV programs and, and, and that are, exist to talk only about the Holy Spirit and what He does. And anyone who puts the majority of their focus on the work of the Holy Spirit, in fact, dishonors the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit desires to honor Jesus Christ. There's always a ditch on both sides of the road, though. Because you do have that obvious ditch on the one side of overemphasizing the work of the Holy Spirit. And we see that a lot. An equally dangerous ditch is one that people like us are prone to fall into, and that is neglecting the Holy Spirit and His work. See, while we don't want to be so focused as some are on Holy Spirit power, you have some people, some preachers, that's all they talk about. They want the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to be so focused on the Holy Spirit power that we neglect the Christ that we need the power to serve. 
And a lot of times you have people like me who see that error and desire to get so far away from that error that we might fall on the other side of the road and neglect the work of the Holy Spirit altogether. We would never say we don't need the Holy Spirit, but in practice, we do not call on and pray that we have the help and the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to work so hard to serve Christ that we try to do it without the help and the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if we're going to do what Jesus has called us to do as His followers individually, and as His church as a whole, we must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. If we're going to reveal God to the world in preaching His message, preaching the gospel, if we're going to stand firm through suffering and trials and cancer and financial stress or whatever else, if we're going to abide in Christ and bear spiritual fruit, if we're going to endure through persecution and the world's hatred of us, all these things that Jesus has been talking about, friend, we must have the help and the power of the Holy Spirit. If we want to accomplish anything that God has called us to do, we cannot do it in our own strength. We need divine help. So we pick up where we left off last time and in verse 5, which completes that thought in verse 4. Let's look at it again. Verse, the end of verse 4, he says, These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now verse 5 is an apparent problem, if you remember what we saw back in chapter 13 and 14. He says here that none of you asks me, where are you going? Well, Actually, in chapter 13, verse 36, Peter did come to Jesus and says, Lord, where are you going? And then you get to chapter 14, and Jesus is telling them about preparing them a place. And Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? So why does Jesus say here, none of you are asking where I'm going? The issue is, is not that they didn't say those words, but it's the essence of the question, the sense of the question. You see, the disciples have been asking their questions only because they're centered on themselves and how this is going to affect them. Jesus says he's going away and nobody says, well, Jesus, what's going to happen to you? Jesus, you mean you're, you're going to a cross? Are you going to be okay? Is this part of God's plan? Or, that Nobody's asking out of concern for Jesus. They're asking, where are you going? What do you mean you're leaving us? What are we supposed to do? Their attention, their eyes are fixed on themselves. The disciples are asking, only thinking about themselves. Overall, they're concerned about what's going to happen to them. This is why verse 6, he says, sorrow has filled your hearts. The Greek verb there, has filled, is a perfect active verb, which means that it's a continuing sadness. 
One, their teacher's leaving. Of course they're going to be sad. This is the man they've spent time with around the clock for three years. He's leaving. They're sad. Sorrow has filled their hearts. And then he goes and says, after he says, I'm leaving, he says, the world's going to hate you, by the way. Of course sorrow has filled their hearts. They don't see any way that they could ever go on without Jesus. And then Jesus makes this shocking statement in verse 7. And we've talked about this a little before. Verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. There's an emphasis there on the truthfulness of the statement. They're not inclined to believe what he's about to say. Nevertheless, listen up, guys. Yes, I'm leaving you. Yes, the world is going to hate you. Yes, sorrow has filled your hearts. But nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. No way. <laughs> no way, Jesus. That, that can't be possible. It's not, how could it be to our advantage that you go away? He says, for if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send Him to you. When he says it is to your advantage, it's the same word that Caiaphas used just a few chapters ago. When Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead and they say, what are we going to do? Everybody's going to go follow this Jesus and they're not going to listen to us anymore. And Caiaphas says it is expedient. It is to our advantage that one man should die for the people. Now, Caiaphas didn't know what he was saying. There was more truth to that than he realized. He's thinking if we kill Jesus, then we don't have to worry about the Romans coming in and wiping out the rest of our people. We don't have to worry about all the people leaving us to follow him. But in reality, it is to their advantage. It was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Caiaphas spoke it not knowing what he was saying, but Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away because Jesus knows what happens after the cross. He knows that once he goes to the cross, he dies, he pays the debt for sin, he rises and then he ascends back to the Father that the Holy Spirit will come and be with his people. They're not inclined to believe such a shocking statement, but it is to their advantage because they would, they would not receive, and we would not receive, all the blessings of the coming of the Holy Spirit if Jesus remained with them. But if He did depart, if He did die, if He did rise, if He did ascend back to the Father, just as He was sent to us by the Father, He would send the Holy Spirit. So then in these next few verses, he talks about the Holy Spirit's work in the world. We've talked a bit over the last several weeks about the Holy Spirit's work in the Christian, in the disciple, in the follower of Jesus. But the Holy Spirit is active not just in believers, but in people in the world. Verse 8, he says, When He has come, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The ministry of the Holy Spirit to the unbelieving world is His work of conviction. Now that might be a blurry word to us. What does that mean? What is 
the conviction of the Holy Spirit. If I set you in front of the rest of the church right now and said, tell me, what is the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Give a definition, please. What would you say? Some people think of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit as a feeling. It's something that you feel when you need to go pray or you need to go talk to God or something like that. Now, the kind of churches, some of the churches, I won't generalize, but some of the churches that I grew up around focused very much on the emotions in their preaching and in their services. I remember one particular occasion, a preacher got up and preached this this sermon about hell and told this this story at the end. We were we were like middle school students, and he tells this story about the end about this teenager who you know went out and got drunk and was driving home and got, was in a car wreck and the car caught on fire and he's screaming for his life. Oh, it, you know it's so hot it burns. Jesus save me! And then he says, and that 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 young man was lost and he he's still in the fire today. You know they would tell some heart wrenching like get scare you to death kind of story, right? And one guy, this is ridiculous, and you won't believe me, hit a smoke machine in the baptistry. He tells his, his heart-wrenching story about hell and has somebody back there turn on the smoke machine to scare a bunch of middle schoolers into thinking that they're going to go to hell that day just to get them to come and pray the prayer and get saved. He was trying to conjure up the conviction of the Holy Spirit by tugging on our emotions, our feelings. The convicting work of the Holy Spirit isn't a mere feeling, though feelings may come with it. Now, for someone who didn't grow up in a place like that, or even around church at all, and you say, what is conviction? Well, they're going to say, well, that's whenever a criminal is declared guilty. The evidence is brought forth. The judge comes and delivers the verdict. He's declared guilty. They lock him up, and he never sees the light of day again. That's conviction. That's a little closer to the work of the Holy Spirit, but it's still not quite there. The word is often used regarding legal matters, but the word conviction has to do with convincing or refuting, cross-examining, exposing the truth. When the Holy Spirit convicts an unbeliever, He is persuading them, convincing them of the truth, specifically the truth about sin and righteousness and judgment. But the Holy Spirit doesn't convict the world of sin so that they can slap the cuffs on you, drag you off, and you never have a chance to be free. No, the Holy Spirit convicts sinners that they might repent and be saved. So conviction of the Spirit is not a feeling, though feelings certainly accompany it. It's not an emotional hype. It's the convincing of an unbeliever about the truths of God. He specifically names three truths here in this passage. He says he convicts concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. Let's look at each of these. Concerning sin, verse 9. Of sin... Because they do not believe in me. Not because they don't know what sin is. 
He doesn't say He convicts of sin because they don't know that they're sinners. Everyone has a conscience. God has put that knowledge of right and wrong in the hearts and minds of every person who walks the earth, whether they're believers or not. We all have that sense of morality. He doesn't convict of sin because we don't know what sin is. He convicts because we do not believe in Jesus. You see, when we sin, we break God's law, but the root of sin is unbelief. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden. Yes, they sinned by doing the act of eating the fruit, but what was at the root of that sin? They didn't believe God. The serpent came along and said, did God really say? He got them to doubt. They didn't believe God and they sinned. Abraham and Hagar, right? Abraham is getting to be an old man. Sarah says, I can't have any babies. God's promised us a baby. Go in there with my servant and have a baby. He sinned, but he did it because he did not believe God. Judas and his relationship to Jesus. He followed Jesus. He sinned. He betrayed Jesus. Yes, but it wasn't just because he felt like going out and doing it. It's because he didn't believe in Jesus. And the same applies to us and all of our sins. Every time you sin, it isn't just that you made this mistake or that you stumbled or that you accidentally did something. No, every time you sin, it is an act of unbelief. In that moment, when you deliberately disobey the law of God, you say, God, I really don't believe that you know what's best for me. I know that what I want to do right now really is the best thing that I can do for myself. Every sin is an act of unbelief. He convicts of sin because they do not believe in Jesus. A.T. Robertson said, Without this conviction by the paraclete, such men actually have a pride of intellectual superiority in refusing to believe on Jesus. Is that not the world we live in? People think they're actually smarter and more intelligent, that they're superior because they don't believe in that Bible stuff. One of my most quoted Bible verses over the last year and a half, Kelby will tell you this, is Romans 1.22. Thinking themselves to be wise, they became fools. You can't watch the news without thinking of that Bible verse. You can't read headlines without thinking of that Bible verse. You see the things that people do in the world and you think, yeah, thinking themselves to be wise, they became fools. Why? Because he says a couple of verses later, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature, creature rather, than, rather than the Creator. This world has rejected God and rejected God and rejected God. God lets us do what we want and we just show how stupid we really can be. The unbelieving world boasts in its sin. It's June and what do we see all over the news, right? It's Pride Month. We're proud of our sin. We're proud of our unbelief. We're proud of how far we've gone from God. And sexual sin is not, not, not the extent of it. Greed, selfishness, adultery. 
sin all over the place and we have come to the point where we're not ashamed of it anymore. We gloat in it. We put it on Facebook. We tweet about it. We take a picture and post it on Instagram. It makes the news and it's celebrated. God gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts. Thinking themselves to be wise, they became fools. The only hope for the unbelieving world is the convicting, the convincing power of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can open blinded eyes to see sin for what it is that they may repent. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. Number two, He convicts concerning righteousness. Verse 10, Of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and you see me no more. Even in His human flesh, when He was here, they could see Him. Jesus was perfectly righteous. Now that He's gone, we don't see Him. The Holy Spirit does the work of convicting unbelievers of His righteousness, convincing them of His righteousness that they may see it and believe. Blindness to Christ's righteousness explains the moral freefall of the world. Even when He was on earth, they were blind to see it. They put Him to death. And only the Holy Spirit can give eyes to see. Only the Holy Spirit can convict the world concerning righteousness. Now this follows logically verse 9 because being convicted of sin alone would give hopelessness. To be convicted and convinced of our sins and to realize our fallen state and, and for that to be the end of it would produce despair. But the Holy Spirit convinces us of Christ's righteousness because it is His righteousness that provides a remedy for sin. He lived a sinless life in our behalf. Yes, Jesus died in our place, but don't forget that He also lived in your place. You can't live a sinless life, so He lived a sinless life for you. You couldn't die to pay the debt for your sins, so He died for you. His righteousness was put on full display. And now, Paul told the Corinthians that God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It is when we are convinced, convicted of the righteousness of Jesus that we can believe in Him. But third, He convicts concerning judgment. Verse 11, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Uh, the verb is judged is another one of those perfect tense verbs. It's a, it's a past action with effects in the present. You see, Satan is in the world right now. He's active. That's clear. But his doom is sure. He stands condemned. As Jesus says, he is judged. You see, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of judgment because their rejection of His conviction of sin and righteousness ensures that they will meet the same fate as Satan himself. Just 
as sure as Satan will be judged by God, so will the unbeliever if he rejects the Holy Spirit's convicting work. The same goes for any one of you in this room who do not yet believe. If you resist the Spirit's conviction of sin and you say, yeah, my sin's not that bad. Or yeah, I can do enough to make up for it. If you resist the conviction of the Spirit concerning righteousness and you say, yeah, Jesus' righteousness, that's good and all, but I think mine will be okay. I think I can balance the scale. If you reject His conviction of sin and righteousness, you can be sure that you are already condemned and stand under judgment just like Satan himself. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. If you do not believe, if you have not repented, if you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ alone, you are right now already condemned and stand to be judged. And that day when Satan is judged and he is cast to his final place of torment, so will you. The book of Revelation ends in chapter 20 with... Satan himself being judged, thrown into the lake of fire with death and hell. And then right after that, immediately following, we read that the sea gave up the dead, the graves gave up their dead, all the dead sinners of the world came to stand to be judged, and they too were cast into the lake of fire. Unbelievers follow right after the devil. That's the Holy Spirit's work in the world. But He does His work through His disciples. Verse, look at verse 12 through 15. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. The work that the Holy Spirit does, he does through the disciples. And not them only, but also through us. The Holy Spirit will help people understand Jesus' message and teachings. He will speak God's words. He will glorify Christ. He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. But how does He do it? Who does He do it through? He does it through disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. God's plan A is to do His work through His church and there is no plan B. The work of convicting of sin and righteousness and judgment is the work of the Holy Spirit, but He only does it through the people of God. So what does that mean we need to be talking about? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You'll be happy and healthy and well, and, and all will go well for you if you believe in Jesus. That's not the content of our message. 
the content of our message is that of sin. That we have offended a holy and a righteous God. It is that of righteousness. That only the righteousness of Jesus Christ can cleanse us of sin. And that of judgment. That if we do not recognize our need and our sin, and if we do not surrender ourselves to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that there is judgment that awaits. That is the Christian message. And it is as we preach that message, as we share that message with the unbelieving world, that the Holy Spirit does His work of convicting them, convincing them. It's not your job to save people. You know, if you share the gospel with somebody and they reject it, they're not rejecting you because it's not your job to change their mind. You preach the message, leave the convicting, leave the convincing to the work of the Holy Spirit. If they reject the message, they're rejecting God, not you. You're just the messenger. So we've got two big takeaways here. One, just as I said, if the world is going to be convicted concerning sin, righteousness of judgment, then we need to be preaching sin and righteousness and judgment. We need to be saying what the Bible says. But two, if the world will ever be convinced or convicted of concerning these things, then the Holy Spirit has to be the one to do it. What good is it for us to go through the motions of obedience... To open our mouths to share the gospel. To do the hard work of making disciples. Of serving our community. Of trying to proclaim the message of God to the world. If we do it in our own strength. We must. We must work and speak in the power of the Holy Spirit. We must invoke His help. We must spend time in prayer. We must depend on God. Unbeliever, hear the truth concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You are a sinner. You stand condemned. But Jesus lived the holy and righteous life that you couldn't. And He died in your place that you could be saved. Repent and put your trust in Him. Christian, we must be faithful to proclaim these things. And we must depend on the power of God and, pr and pray fervently that His Spirit will work through us as we obediently speak His Word. The work of the Spirit in the world is this. He has come to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Would you stand and pray with me? God, thank you for your word. Thank you that the power doesn't lie in me as the preacher, but the power is in your spirit as he applies your word. So God, I pray that you would do now what I cannot do. Open our eyes to see, our hearts to receive.
the truth of your word, that the unbeliever would see his sin, your righteousness, and the judgment to come, and that he would repent and be saved. And I pray that we as Christians would be faithful to proclaim this message and depend on the power and the help of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.